Hello and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And today I am joined by uh, myself um, because this is a fairly unique episode of the podcast in that it is an anniversary special. One year ago today, uh, saw the launch of the Social Review Podcast. Our first episode was titled The European Elections. Remember those. Uh, and we chatted about what those results meant for the Labour Party and Brexit. And um, we also spoke about Detective Pikachu uh, for some reason. Theresa May was still Prime Minister. None of us knew what COVID-19 was. How many worlds away that all seems now. We started the social review in late 2018 uh, because a group of people, of very, very online people, uh, saw a space on the left and in the Labour Party for a forum to discuss and debate the future of socialism in a way that was open and tolerant and pluralistic. Um, And socialism is sort of inherently oriented to to the future. Uh, There is always a future of socialism because it's about looking at the world now and imagining there could be something better. If you're not unhappy with the way things are, then you're probably not a socialist. We wanted to start a podcast to expand our coverage and as well because we're online 20-somethings in the 21st century, of course, we wanted to start a podcast. Um, But podcasts are inherently different to articles because an article is one person arguing their view. It's a debate insofar as it's a debate within the author's head. And it's in text. The text is neutral. An online political discourse has been so corrosive and so horrible over the past few years, um, invariably on Twitter. Because most, but not all, but most of the time, we're just reading what each other is writing. And podcasts are different because you can hear us say those things. You can hear our inflection, our tones, our confidence or unconfidence in what we're saying. And you can put a voice to the words. And we always, always, I hope, have engaging and respectful discussions on here. Much of which has been about quite delicate topics. Racism, gun violence, what Labour needs to do to win. Conversations which could very easily, when done via Twitter or written down in any other medium, end up quite difficult. But it's much harder to misunderstand what someone has said if you're talking to them. And that's the other key thing, talking to them. A podcast where everyone is saying the same thing isn't a particularly interesting podcast, I don't think, anyway. Um, And even though there is an obvious overall level of agreement, we're on the left, I don't think any of us are going to disagree with that. What I've always tried to do with these episodes is make them discussion pieces and at the very least interesting to listen to. So if you've been listening over the past year, then hopefully that has come through. And if not, don't tell me. So the idea with this episode was to reflect back on the politics of the past year and look to the future. You know, what we got right, what we got wrong, what could come next. Uh, I'll start with the easy one. I thought Labour would win the 2019 general election. That did not happen. But I wanted to focus on a different prediction, also wrong, of course, which I think has a lot of relevance for politics now and the future of politics, too. So back in the Conservative leadership election last summer, I started to think that the final two candidates were going to be Boris Johnson and Rory Stewart. And for a very brief moment, it looked like Stewart had the necessary momentum to get there. Uh, He cultivated this cult political persona. He drew himself as a different kind of conservative, a kinder paternalistic politician in comparison to Boris Johnson. Paternalistic conservatism is the oldest kind of conservatism. And fundamentally, perhaps most importantly, he wasn't a new Tory. 
He'd been in MP since 2010 and voted through all the legislation which destroyed the fabric of Britain that he claimed he wanted to rebuild without ever speaking up about it. And it was only when Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers came along that he and so many other Tories decided that there was a difference. They were loud, rude, obnoxious, disrespectful, xenophobic, cruel, isolationist. I could go on. And it's true that there was that irrevocable difference in policy, but... At heart, they were and are politicians guided by the same conservative philosophies as they always had been. And even beyond that, they both went to Eton and Oxford. Neither of them had much to say about divisive rhetoric when David Cameron was saying it. So it matters what is being said, but crucially, it also matters who is saying it. And the only absolute difference between the two men is that they are two men. Two minds, two bodies, two divergent images denoting these entirely different socio-cultural conceptions of England and politics and what those mean, if anything. And, and that's a point that I want to come back to. But what all politics is, and I think this is the crucial lesson over the past year, is that politics is, is a performance. It's about constructing an image of yourself to appeal to the most people. It doesn't matter that paternalistic conservatism is the oldest kind of conservatism, and it doesn't matter that Rory Stewart wasn't a new Tory in any sense. It doesn't matter if Rory Stewart actually believes in kind, compassionate conservatism, and it doesn't even matter if Boris Johnson is actually irresponsible or isolationist. None of it matters. All that matters is that that is how they act, and that's what everybody thinks they are. My old politics teacher once told me an anecdote of attending an event and standing with a view of the wings, the host called the name of Boris Johnson out onto the stage, and right before he stepped into the light, he ruffled his hair and unstraightened his tie. He knows exactly what part he's playing. In this week, we've been following the fallout of the Dominic Cummings saga because he broke the rules of the coronavirus lockdown, but the government that's drawn up those rules has stuck by him. And they've obliterated their polling position, united the country in opposition to one man, and most delicately, maybe obliterated the public health messaging that is so crucial to saving more lives. We don't know what will happen. Maybe you, whenever you are, do. But what's been most interesting in the government's defence of Cummings is how it is rooted in him acting reasonably, instinctively, even rationally. Their words and his own defence at the press conference have been about making his actions make sense, giving them logic. And there is a logic to the lockdown because it's a logic about public health, but it's also a profoundly emotional and psychological event. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that the public response to Cummings' actions has been profoundly emotional and psychological too. And that's why, again, it doesn't matter if any of his story is true. It doesn't matter if he did or didn't break the lockdown rules. It doesn't matter if he actually needed to test his eyesight or anything. The government bet that once people heard his explanation, they would calm down, but they didn't. Because of course we were never going to. We'd made up our minds. It was about the image. It was about the sense that he'd broken the spirit of the lockdown, as it were. This image of an arrogant, elitist man who thinks he's smarter than the rest of us and can therefore behave differently to the rest of us. One rule for them and another for us, as it were. And getting to the Labour Party, the overriding lesson of the past year is the same. Public perception, public opinion is everything. If everyone decides that you're incompetent or that you're a joke, you're a mad old socialist who doesn't know what he's doing and then it's pretty hard to shake that and it doesn't actually matter if any of those things are true or not working class voters thought boris johnson a borderline aristocrat a member of the gilded elite offered more hope for them than jeremy corbyn 
And it's not about whether the public are right or wrong to think and feel certain things. It just matters that they do. So it's up to us to figure out the best response and the best way of changing minds, or at least in leadership electoral terms, accepting when we can't. But I think that overriding lesson suggests that the best way to change minds and get the response you want is by speaking to people's emotions, by building an emotional, spiritual, symbolic case for your election. I said that Johnson and Stewart represented different ideas of England, and I think part of Johnson's success is how he is the physical, political manifestation of a certain part of English culture, much like how Trump is, in many ways, a personification of a kind of America. The affable, quirky, but foolish intellectual, a comedy archetype. You could say his election is the inaction of a national fantasy to see how that archetype fares as Prime Minister. And at time of recording, Keir Starmer does seem to be doing better. He's got record high approval ratings for a Labour leader. The latest poll puts Labour at 38% of support. And maybe in a year's time the roles will flip. Maybe Starmer will disappoint and Boris Johnson will be back on top. We're trapped in the present, we don't know. What I think we do know is that Starmer is representing a different vision of England, and I'm, I'm emphasising England because I think it is English rather than British, but I'm happy to be corrected on that. It's the England of the stern headmaster, firm but fair, the man in the suit who knows what he's doing. And the interesting thing about Keir Starmer is the image and the reality are once again divorced, but it's in his favour this time. People think he's a calm, sensible, rational man, and I suppose he is, but that leads many to think he must be a liberal or a Blairite or whatever term you want to use, because it seems we cannot conceive of a radical socialist not making themselves look like a radical socialist. Time will tell, but if I were to make any prediction of what's going to come next, and then that is going to be it, I think. Keir Starmer will make many who can never vote for Corbyn buy into socialism, or at least social democracy, because he looks and sounds like a liberal democrat or even a conservative. But when you boil down to the substance, that couldn't be further from the truth. He's not a liberal democrat or a conservative. Of course he's not. You need the substance to govern and the image to get elected. Boris Johnson is all image and no substance. Jeremy Corbyn was all substance and no image. Or not an electable image, at least. We'll have to wait and see how the new dynamic plays out. But beyond that, it is difficult to imagine any kind of firm future because our capacity to do so has been curtailed. Uh, we're stuck. The only future that looks likely of disease and social distancing, of not being able to hug each other while we're being forced to go to work, looks horrible. And we're looking back to find these precedents to try and give us some hope that there is a way out. And we can look back to the turning points of the past to try and imagine a different and better present. But the cruel thing about a virus, about this virus, is that it was always going to happen. If Labour had won in December, we'd still end up where we are now. If Labour had won in 2017, we'd still end up where we are now. If Remain had won the referendum, it it doesn't matter. Because the chain of causalities is so absolutely out of any of our control. It's in bats and pangolins in China. This was inevitable. And because of that, we can't know what's coming next that's inevitable. That's part of what makes this all so uncertain. And unprecedented, too. We've had pandemics before, of course, many within living memory, but the key variable is that our world has never had a pandemic like this before. And our world is unlike any world that has existed at any point in human history. It's rigorously interconnected. It's older. We have the benefits of hindsight. All information from everywhere, from all of time and space, is available right now at every moment. 
who were quite fond of the late cultural theorist Mark Fisher at the Social Review, and he spoke of how the present of late-stage globalised capitalism is a world where cultural time has folded in on itself, happening and rehappening all at once and forevermore. And Fisher wrote of it as a hell, but in times of the pandemic, maybe it's a good thing, because we can know what's going on everywhere and learn from other countries. We can learn from the past. We can bring our heads together and talk and act far more quickly and far more decisively than has ever been possible. And that means that an image, an idea, can permeate in an instant, like with Dominic Cummings. And maybe that idea will be socialism. So as long as the world's still here, we'll still be here, discussing and debating the future of socialism in articles and on air every week in our corner of the internet with the most fascinating guests, MPs, academics, journalists, activists, beyond. If you've been listening over the past year and reading the website, then we cannot thank you enough. It really does mean everything. Of course, the unknown does breed uncertainty, but something has to happen. Something will happen. A future will happen. So let's hope it's a good one.